You're finishing up your shift in the ER when you see Tina Upton, a healthy 20-year-old who was on a hike with her friend earlier that day. The day outside broke the hot temperature records, and she and her friend took a wrong turn and ran out of water. They eventually made it back to their car, and her friend notes that Tina was really dizzy. Then in the car ride, she was fatigued and even confused. As you listen to this story, you wonder, what could be making Tina dizzy and fatigued and especially confused when she's otherwise so healthy? Consider your answer as we begin this next episode. Welcome to Audiobricks. I'm Adam Weinstein, bringing nephrology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this episode, you'll be able to, one, identify the normal reference range of serum osmolality and the sources of water intake and excretion, two, describe the thirst mechanism, three, describe how water is reabsorbed from the nephron segments, four, explain how the countercurrent multiplier in the loop of Henle creates a concentrated interstitium, and five, describe the regulation and secretion and action of antidiuretic hormone in the kidney. Part 1. What is water homeostasis? Water makes up two-thirds of the total human body weight and is the key solvent for all the ions, carbohydrates, and proteins that keep us alive. Although a small amount of water is produced from the body's metabolic activity, we need to drink water to keep up with daily water losses. Maintaining adequate total body water is crucial to life and is a shared responsibility of the brain, such as the thirst response, the kidneys, water reabsorption and excretion, and the gastrointestinal tract, water absorption and excretion. Now, let's discuss serum osmolality. A person's serum osmolality, which is a measure of the concentration of all of the solutes in their serum, tells us about a person's state of hydration. For example, a serum osmolality that is high, meaning solutes are overly concentrated, suggests that an individual might be dehydrated. Serum osmolality is measured in milliosms per kilogram of water. We need tight water regulation to maintain our serum osmolality in the normal range, which is about 275 to 295 milliosms per kilogram water. How we maintain a normal serum osmolality is a partnership of the brain and the kidney, which work together to maintain water homeostasis. Let's review what we've gone over with a question. What does an elevated serum osmolality suggest about a person's hydration status? An elevated serum osmolality suggests that an individual might be dehydrated. Now, let's look at the interplay between fluid intake and excretion in water homeostasis. Water intake mostly occurs through drinking fluids, which is taken into the body through absorption of water in the GI tract, especially the colon. Water intake is stimulated by the thirst response. About 10% of water production occurs as a byproduct of cellular respiration, but this is not enough to balance excretion. So unlike some reptiles and birds, we can't survive without drinking water. Water excretion occurs in the kidney, where water is filtered, then reabsorbed by the tubules. Excess water can be excreted in the urine. Water also can be excreted by exhalation and evaporation off the skin, which together are termed insensible losses also sweat production, or fecal fluid secretion. Each of these fluids contains more water than salt, or you can say that the fluids are hypoosmotic. 
So a loss of these leads to concentration of the blood or hyperosmolality. Hmm, I wonder if all this sweat loss and a high serum osmolality has something to do with our patient Tina's symptoms. Part two, how does the thirst response work and how do the kidneys participate in water homeostasis? Thirst stimulates drinking our only way to take in water. But what actually triggers thirst? Well, the sensation of thirst can be triggered by increased serum osmolality and decreased blood volume, thanks to osmoreceptors in the hypothalamus and baroreceptors in the carotid sinus and aortic arch. Once we have taken in water, we need to make sure it is not all lost in the urine. The kidneys are able to reabsorb almost all of the water that they've filtered. But how much water the kidneys reabsorb is important in how we adjust to dry or wet environments. For example, we must be able to survive in deserts and also in humid, rainy conditions, or after we drink large amounts of fluids, or are without fluids for prolonged periods, like sleeping. To regulate the body's water balance, the kidneys will adjust urine concentration and urine volume. When we are in a hot, dry environment with lots of water loss through sweating, we need to conserve water and make a lower volume concentrated urine. When we drink lots of water at a party or our bodies are in a surplus of fluids, we need to be able to excrete it in a higher volume and make a dilute urine. So that's the big picture. Now let's dive a little deeper into each part of the nephron and see how each handles water reabsorption. The first step in the way kidneys handle water homeostasis is in the glomerulus. Water is freely filtered at the glomerulus and isoosmotically, so the fluid in the glomerular filtrate, that is, in Bowman's capsule and then the proximal tubule, is isoosmotic with the blood, which, for simplicity, we will round to about 300 milliosms per kilogram water. The proximal tubule's job is to reabsorb large amounts of solute, especially sodium, it does so isoosmotically with water because as sodium is reabsorbed, water is also reabsorbed through the paracellular pathway, as well as transcellular through aquaporins. And for a quick heads up, these are different aquaporins from the ones in the collecting duct. The ones in the collecting duct are regulated by ADH, so don't mix these up with those. In summary, water reabsorption undergoes no specific regulation other than it follows sodium reabsorption. So the more sodium reabsorption, the more water reabsorption. And the urine osmolality at the end of the proximal tubule is unchanged from what was filtered, and it remains about 300 milliosms per kilogram water. Okay, moving along the nephron, let's now enter the descending limb of the loop of Henle. This nephron segment is permeable to water as well. However, unlike the proximal tubule, it is not permeable to sodium. So here, water is reabsorbed without sodium, and the fluid in the tubule becomes increasingly concentrated. We'll come back to the importance of this shortly when we talk about countercurrent multiplication. Just you wait. Before we get to that, though, let's talk about the ascending limb of the loop of Henle and the distal convoluted tubule. These nephron segments are impermeable to water, but unlike the descending limb, they are permeable to sodium and reabsorb lots of sodium through transcellular as well as paracellular pathways. Therefore, as the fluid moves up this limb and along the distal convoluted tubule, the tubule fluid becomes more dilute. 
by the end of the distal convoluted tubule, also known as the diluting segment of the nephron, the osmolality of the tubular filtrate may have an osmolality as low as 50 to 100 milliosms per kilogram water. Okay, let's review this all with a question break. How does the diluting segment of the nephron lower the urine concentration? The diluting segment of the nephron lowers the urine concentration because it is impermeable to water while it reabsorbs a lot of sodium. Therefore, by the end of it, water stays in the lumen, but there is less solute, and the osmolality may be diluted down to 50 to 100 milliosms per kilogram water. This has been a long journey through the nephron. Let's end it by flowing through the cortical and medullary collecting ducts where hormonal water regulation occurs. The collecting duct is impermeable to water at baseline, but becomes permeable when antidiuretic hormone, or ADH, also known as vasopressin, is present. This means ADH regulates whether water gets reabsorbed in this segment or not. In the no ADH situation, the collecting duct principal cells do not reabsorb water. Note that in this case, a very dilute final urine, as low as 50 milliosms kilogram water, can be achieved. On the other hand, if ADH is present, water can be reabsorbed, and urine osmolality can rise as high as 1,200 milliosms kilogram water. This shows how we can dramatically adjust our urine concentration and dilution depending on what we need, all with the goal of keeping the blood volume and serum osmolality in ideal ranges. But ADH only works by inserting water channels, aquaporins, in the collecting duct apical membranes. It does not create a concentration gradient for water reabsorption. So for ADH to have an effect, we need a concentrated medullary interstitium with high osmotic pressure to pull water out of the tubular lumen and into the interstitium and from there into the blood. But how do we generate a concentrated interstitium? Here is where the loop of Henle steps forward and generates the concentrated interstitium. Part three, how do countercurrent mechanisms in the loop of Henle work? So we went through each part of the nephron in depth, but what we haven't discussed yet is how does the loop of Henle create such a strong concentration gradient in the inner medulla such that it can rise as high as 1,200 milliosms per kilogram water? For this to happen, we need to discuss, as promised, the countercurrent multiplication system for urinary concentration. To explain how this works, let's break down the movement along the nephron even more slowly than before and take this step by step. But first, the fundamental rules. As fluid moves down the loop, the descending portion of the loop is permeable to water but not to salt. So as fluid moves down the descending limb, it becomes progressively more concentrated as water is reabsorbed but salt stays in the lumen. As fluid moves up the loop, the ascending portion of the loop is permeable to salt but not to water. So the transport of salt out of the lumen but not water allows the urine to become more dilute as it moves up. With that context, let's actually begin our step-by-step discussion in reverse order by talking about what happens as the fluid moves up the loop. This will help us to see how countercurrent multiplication works step-by-step, and as an aside, this is truly one of my favorite things, so I hope you appreciate my enthusiasm as I go through these steps. Step one, first, sodium is reabsorbed out of the ascending limb, lumen, and into the medullary interstitium. This step leads to a higher osmolality in the interstitium than in the lumen at this level. 
Step two requires us to think three-dimensionally. At the same level in the renal medulla, let's take a cross-section. We'll find both ascending limbs and descending limbs. So that ascending limb in step one, it just made the interstitium more concentrated than the lumen. So at the same level in the descending limb, which is permeable to water, the higher interstitial osmolality promotes water to be reabsorbed out of the descending limb lumen and into the interstitium. Step three. Okay, so now we have a descending limb lumen that has lost water and become more concentrated. And at this same level, we have an ascending limb lumen that has lost salt and has become less concentrated. Pretty cool, huh? But it doesn't end here. That's just the countercurrent. We still have to multiply. So step four, remember, this is a flowing tubule. So the next step is that the fluid in the tubule is moving forward. So the higher osmolality fluid in the descending limb descends down to the turn of the loop of Henle. And the lower osmolality fluid in the ascending limb lumen rises up the ascending limb towards the cortex. What this means is that the lumen is now more dilute higher up the limb and more concentrated at the bottom, at the turn of the loop. And so in step five, we recognize this is all happening simultaneously. All of these steps are happening at the same time, all over the descending and ascending limbs, and iteratively. It's flowing continuously forward. So we repeat steps one through four. In step one repeated, the ascending limb fluid, already more dilute, becomes even more dilute. And in step two repeated, the descending limb fluid becomes even more concentrated. And then it flows. So the even more concentrated fluid flows down to the turn of the loop, and the even more dilute fluid flows even further up the ascending limb. And voila, this keeps happening, and we have a remarkable concentration gradient that goes all the way up to 1,200 milliosms per kilogram water at the deepest part of the renal medulla. We have a concentrated interstitium that then can then be used for water reabsorption downstream in the collecting duct when under the influence of ADH. Okay, now time for a question break. How does the thick ascending limb contribute to the countercurrent concentration mechanism? The thick ascending limb contributes to the countercurrent concentration mechanism because sodium chloride is reabsorbed out of the thick ascending limb lumen and into the interstitium. This creates a dilute lumen, but a concentrated interstitium. As a result, water in the descending limb is triggered to be reabsorbed along its concentration gradient from the descending limb lumen and into the interstitium. And if that wasn't enough, I wanted to mention two more concepts that are important to achieving such remarkable urinary concentration. First, the sodium chloride gradient only contributes to about half of the concentration gradient from renal cortex to inner medulla. What? Yes, that's right. The other half comes from urea. Urea, also known as blood urea nitrogen when it's in the blood, is freely filtered by the glomerulus and into the tubular lumen. Most of the filtered urea is reabsorbed by the proximal tubule. However, some remains. Interestingly, in the presence of ADH, additional urea may be reabsorbed out of the inner medullary collecting duct lumen into the inner medullary interstitium. Why? Well, 
This further increases the intermedullary interstitium concentration and allows the medullary interstitial concentration to get as high as 1,200 millimosms per kilogram water. And therefore, this allows additional water to be reabsorbed out of the medullary collecting duct lumen to achieve a very high urinary concentration of 1,200 milliosms per kilogram water. So when we want to reabsorb more water, ADH not only makes the collecting duct more permeable to water, but it also makes it permeable to urea, increases the reabsorption of urea into the medullary interstitium, and further enhances water reabsorption. And last but not least, let's talk about the vasorecta. The vasorecta are the blood supply to the loop of Henle. And why is this carefully crafted medullary concentration gradient that I so enthusiastically described not just washed away by blood that is circulating through the nephron? Well, it's because the blood supply is not just a set of random capillaries. The vasorecta are specialized blood vessels that follow the loop of Henle, like ivy surrounding a column. Normal capillaries would quickly dissipate the medullary concentration gradient. However, when blood volume is low or serum osmolality is elevated and a concentrated urine is needed, the vasorecta blood flow drops. With less blood flow in the vasorecta, the concentration gradient is preserved and is not able to be washed away. Conversely, when blood volume is high and water intake high and a dilute urine is needed, the vasorecta blood flow increases, and that leads to the medullary concentration gradient's dissipation, inhibiting water reabsorption and better dilution of the urine. And let's finish this discussion off with a question break. Why is the countercurrent multiplication system in the loop of Henle important? The countercurrent multiplication system in the loop of Henle is important because it creates a concentrated renal medullary interstitium. This is what exerts the osmotic gradient on water in the collecting duct so it can be reabsorbed when ADH is present. Part 4. How does antidiuretic hormone work in the kidney? The collecting duct becomes permeable to water only in the presence of ADH. By controlling the collecting duct's permeability to water, ADH determines whether the final urine is dilute or concentrated. Let's explore how this works even more in depth now. ADH is made in the supraoptic and paraventricular nuclei of the hypothalamus, a key player in connecting the nervous system and the endocrine system. Proteins called neurophysins carry the ADH from the hypothalamus via the magnocellular neurons through the infundibulum to the posterior pituitary gland where ADH is stored and later released into the bloodstream. Two main stimuli cause ADH secretion and renal water reabsorption. These are increased plasma osmolality sensed by osmoreceptors in the hypothalamus, and decreased blood volume sensed by baroreceptors in the carotid sinus and aortic arch. You may recall that these are the same sensors that stimulate thirst, which also increases water in the body. It all makes sense if you think of ADH as a hormone released to keep water in the body. It's intuitive that this pairs with thirst. Okay, now that we know how and when ADH is stimulated, you may be wondering, how exactly does ADH increase renal water reabsorption? Like other hormones, ADH binds to its receptor, called the vasopressin 2 receptor. In the kidney, these are found mostly on the basolateral side of the collecting duct cells of the kidney. 
binding of ADH to its receptor leads to the insertion of aquaporin channels or water channels on the apical membrane. Aquaporins are transmembrane pores that are permeable to water. Water can then enter the cell from the tubular lumen. And then how does the water get from the principal cell and into the blood? Additional aquaporins are located on the basolateral side of the cell so that the water can pass from the cell to the interstitium and into the blood. These channels on the basolateral side are a different type of aquaporin channel, sort of like the proximal tubule aquaporins, and are not under the control of ADH. They are constitutively present. So in summary, after ADH is made due to increased serum osmolality or decreased blood volume, and binds to its receptor, the kidney reabsorbs water, the urine becomes more concentrated, and the blood becomes more dilute. The syndrome of inappropriate ADH, or SIDH, is a condition when ADH is inappropriately or non-physiologically stimulated, leading to inappropriately concentrated urine and causing water retention and dilution of the serum osmolality. This is usually first detected on labs as a low serum sodium concentration. SIDH has many causes and may result from central nervous system or pulmonary diseases and some medications, including selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressants, among others. What about the opposite situation, when we need a dilute urine, like after drinking lots of water? Here, ADH is not stimulated, and so it is not secreted by the posterior pituitary. Downstream of this, there won't be ADH binding to its receptor, and the aquaporins are not inserted into the apical membrane of the collecting duct. Water stays in the tubule, and the tubule fluid remains dilute. And this is just what is needed after drinking all that water. Diabetes insipidus is a condition in which the patient is unable to concentrate the urine appropriately. This is either due to lack of ADH production, such as a brain tumor disrupting the hypothalamic production of ADH, or lack of renal response to ADH, for example, dysfunction of ADH receptors in certain kidney conditions. It can lead to dehydration and high serum sodium concentration. And that's all I have today for water homeostasis. Let's see if we've completed our goals for this episode. First, can you identify the normal reference range of serum osmolality and the sources of water intake and excretion? Normal serum osmolality levels are in the range of 275 to 295 milliosms of kilogram water. Maintaining adequate total body water is regulated by the brain through the thirst response, the kidneys through water reabsorption and excretion, and the gastrointestinal tract through water absorption and excretion. Next, can you describe the thirst mechanism? The thirst response is driven by high serum osmolality and low blood volume. Now, can you describe how water is reabsorbed from the nephron segments? Water filters freely across the glomerulus and is reabsorbed in the proximal tubule following sodium to maintain isoosmotic reabsorption. Using countercurrent multiplication, the loop of Henle creates a concentration gradient from cortex to medulla, which enables the collecting duct to reabsorb water under the stimulation of ADH. Can you explain how the countercurrent multiplier in the loop of Henle creates a concentrated interstitium?
The ascending loop reabsorbs salt, but not water, creating a dilute lumen and concentrated interstitium. In response to this, the descending limb reabsorbs water to dilute the interstitium, but concentrating its lumen. As the tubular fluid flows forward, the concentrated lumen in the descending limb moves to the turn of the loop of Henle, and the dilute lumen of the ascending limb ascends towards the cortex. This all is happening simultaneously throughout the limbs and iteratively as the luminal fluid flows forward, creating a countercurrent multiplier and a highly concentrated medullary interstitium. And lastly, can you describe the regulation, secretion, and action of antidiuretic hormone in the kidney? ADH is released in the hypothalamus and stimulates renal water reabsorption by making the collecting duct permeable to water. ADH is stimulated by high serum osmolality and by volume depletion. Now, let's get back to our patient from the beginning of this episode. Thinking back to our patient, Tina Upton, who after running out of water on an extended hike during a heat wave, presented dizzy, fatigued, and confused. As you listened to this story, you wondered what could be making Tina dizzy and fatigued and especially confused when she's otherwise so healthy. While hiking, Tina lost a lot of water in her sweat. Sweat is hypotonic, meaning she lost more water than salt. This water loss reduced her blood volume and raised her serum osmolality. Her dizziness and fatigue was likely due to her reduced blood volume and her confusion was likely a response of her brain to the sudden rise in serum osmolality. Since this happened acutely, you can correct her serum osmolality by rehydrating her and she'll feel much better. You can't resist suggesting to her and her friend that it may not be wise to go on long hikes during a heat wave. And that's all I have for today's audio break. Thanks for joining me. If you like this episode, give it a thumbs up or a comment. You can enjoy the full Brick experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. Stay healthy out there.